0: From the studio of KPSU Portland and in association with the Department of History at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes. Join us as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, fellow students, and alumni. Hello, and welcome to Beyond Footnotes. As always, I'm Emily, and I'm joined by my fabulous co host Christian.
1: Hey, everybody. In today's world, it can be hard to navigate the sensitive waters of race and immigration, especially without any context to the historical struggles and obstacles immigrants, and more specifically, Chicano immigrants, have had to overcome. The long history of prejudice against Chicanos and Latinx Americans is something not frequently spoken about, but something that has been ongoing behind the scenes and on center stage since the conquest of Mexico by Cortez in 1519. To help us unpack the historical significance of these issues, we have here today Professor Mark Simón Rodríguez, Professor of History and Chicano History at Portland State University and Managing Editor of the Pacific Historical Review. Professor Rodriguez received his BA from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, his MA and PhD from Northwestern University, and a Juris Doctor from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. From 2001 to 2004, he was Assistant Professor of History at Princeton University, where he also served as the Executive Secretary of the Shelby Cullom Davis Center for Historical Studies. In 2004, He was a visiting fellow at the Clements Center for Southwestern Studies at Southern Methodist University. Rodriguez was an assistant professor of history, law, and American studies at the University of Notre Dame from 2004 to 2012 where he was also a fellow of the Institute for Latino Studies. In 2013 to 2014, Rodriguez served as the director of the Civil Rights Heritage Center at Indiana University, South Bend. Professor Rodriguez's book, The Tejano Diaspora, Mexican American and Ethnic Politics in Texas and Wisconsin has won two awards and his most recent book, Rethinking the Chicano Movement has garnered much praise. Professor Rodriguez, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Professor, we'd like to start by asking a few basic questions about the Pacific Historical Review and what goes into it for those who don't know. So what is the Pacific Historical Review, which we will refer to as the PHR, and what sort of history does it cover?
2: Uh, The PHR is, uh, I think it's the oldest scholarly historical journal published on the West Coast. It is a journal that uh, from its beginning focused on what they referred to at the time as Western expansion in U.S. history, basically the movement of people's West and the peoples of what we would consider the American West. But we also have for a long time published uh, research on the Pacific world and that includes Japan, uh, Hawaii, and many other places. And we tend to have an expansive view of uh, what our purview is in terms of uh, the field uh, from the West to the Pacific world is how I would frame it.
0: How do you decide on the themes for each issue, and what is your process in deciding which articles to include?
2: Our journal is a mixture of two processes. Uh, The first is unsolicited manuscripts that come to us from researchers. Uh, That can be anyone from a graduate student uh, doing their first article project to a uh, very senior uh, scholar working on something new, and those come to us really on no schedule, and they are topically across uh, the spectrum of things that we tend to look at, so we're receiving constant submissions, and those we publish based upon uh, their schedule of submission. Uh, The second component are the special issues, which we tend to seek out people within the profession, so scholars that are doing innovative work, or if there's a workshop held somewhere, uh, we try to tap into the work that's done in those places. So, for example, published uh, a special issue recently on Alternative Wests, uh, where there was a, a professor uh, by the name of Andrew Eisenberg that was doing some really innovative work on Manifest Destiny and had gotten people together um, uh, to discuss those things and put work together. Uh, another uh, special issue uh, was on the concept of protection uh, within imperial Uh, Worlds, and uh, that was uh, put together by a group of scholars based in Australia. Uh, So we have a wide ranging view of uh, what the topics can be. And then the most recent one was uh, on the carceral state in the West, uh, looking at the way in which people are confined, and and often uh, the way in which that's about things like nationality, uh, ethnicity, and race. Awesome.
1: So speaking of the carceral state, which is the 2019 special issue, what is the carceral state and what prompted the topic for this special issue?
2: For the issue, I really have to thank uh, uh, Kelly Lytle Hernandez, who's a professor at UCLA. She has done a book on, she refers to the term caging uh, of people in California. It's really innovative and I think it's an important book. Uh, She's also uh, helped curate uh, special issues Or collections of essays in other places on the carceral state and we began a discussion oh I don't know 2014 2015 about having people look at the West and uh, professor Hernandez uh, down at UCLA was kind enough to basically work with a large group of people initially and then sort of winnow that down to the people that had material ready and that's how we wound up with the special issue It was also, I thought, really important because of the fact that it was just so germane to what was happening to many people in the United States as we sort of discuss um, issues of incarceration and uh, voting rights and things like that. And so while the articles aren't necessarily responding to contemporary issues, uh, I thought that it was it was useful that, that people were putting more information out there of a historical nature so that you know, we, we had a deeper background of understanding.
0: In your introduction to the special issue, the carceral state, you speak of your experience with the racialized form of governments that is the carceral state. How has the carceral state's relationship with the Latino population evolved in the post-war United States?
2: Yeah, this was an interesting aspect of the project. Um, I wasn't one of the carceral state uh, scholars, uh, and yet after reading their work, I really took a step back, and I was moved by the project, and uh, I reflected a bit upon my experiences and my observations, and it really sort of struck me that, you know, I think there's an adage, an old adage or comparison that people make when they're teaching and they talk about the way in which people of color view the police and the way in which, uh, I guess, uh, suburban Anglo-Americans view the police. And there's the story about, you know, well, the police are there to help you when your cat gets ca- caught in a tree or maybe that's the fire department uh, and the police come to help you when you lock yourself out of your house or your car. And then for minority people, it's, you know, well, police come for no good reason, uh, and oftentimes you wind up running. And so I think I stepped back from the, from the special issue and thought to myself, well, how has this impacted me? And it was, it was very real. And I think about many of my friends and family members who have experienced the way in which different modes of policing have affected their lives. And I was thinking about the idea of three strikes in particular, and how many people on my latino side of the family because i'm of mixed background have had direct experience with incarceration uh, from an early age and my i myself i remember in high school that uh, i lived in an integrated neighborhood and they would often just let the anglo-american kids go and they would hold us behind and oftentimes later on i think that often led people to get arrested and so i thought well, this is a historical thing, but in an introduction as an editor, um, I felt the need to sort of discuss things from this personal perspective. That being said, I think research done by people like Professor uh, Lytle Hernandez uh, really sheds light on the way in which these things have been an ongoing part of American history and a really important part in incorporating people's uh, in the American West. And so whether it's the way Native Americans were treated uh, in places like Oregon, or I would argue that even though we don't have an article on the topic, uh, Chinese uh, Chinese Americans and Japanese Americans uh, have been uh, subject to very similar experiences of incarceration and forced removal and different types of things that, that people like Hernandez call caging, um, but it is about restriction. And in California, uh, you have a long history of resistance on the part of Latinos and Chicanos, but you also have a long history of very visceral discrimination, which interestingly within the last 30 years, there have been some shifts where longer term uh, Latino and Chicano residents have, have experienced significant upward mobility, yet at the same time, when we take a look at current prison populations. Uh, we can compare them uh, to historical trends and say to ourselves, well, the demographics of where the Chicano and Latino people are coming from has changed, but the prisons still reflect this kind of racial disparity.
1: So to stay on that topic, I myself am actually from California, and I have toured many of the missions all across the state. So how did the Spanish mission system play a role in the evolution of the Western carceral state?
2: Yeah, the missions are... Um, a really hotly debated area of research. And there are people who know much more about that than I do. Uh, in fact, we publish and have published, I think, some really important articles on the missions for the last hundred years, quite honestly, or nearly a hundred years. Um, but my view, thinking about that work, is that you know the missions initially were seen as a way in which the Catholic Church helped putting that in quotes, uh, the indigenous people of California to become civilized, again, putting that in quotes. And uh, I think recently the Pope basically sainted uh, Junipero Serra, which is, he was one of the key priests of of the missions in California and Baja, California. And that history has been pretty much debunked because we look at the way in which uh, people were rounded up, uh, the way in which the missions were themselves uh, prisons. They were locked at night people were confined and now what historians are looking at is the degree to which the labor was free, right? And they're taking things from architectural history, uh, sort of understandings of spatial, uh, uh positioning of individuals. And the missions look like prisons. And so you have people being locked up. Uh, you have people being punished and the reasons for punishing them are, you know, I think the, the church would have said moral, but they're still being punished for not following the rules of the institution, and so by taking a step back and looking looking at these as an institution, we're now, uh, and by we I mean historians, looking at the at the degree to which coercion was the dominant factor, and there's a lot of debate about that, and I, and I don't feel confident saying that I know where that falls down, uh, but I think one thing that it shows us is that. California spent a lot of time, there's a professor down in California, William Deverell wrote this book, Whitewashed Adobe, and it's about sort of this idea in the 20th century how even though the Mexican-American, Chicano people had been sort of disestablished, those that owned land, things like that, uh, they'd lost that land. Um, But at the same time, California thought it was in their best interest to create this myth of this Spanish colonial place. And so the missions that we see today, the structures, um, are these kind of whitewashed adobe buildings that sometimes are more grand than the original building would have been. But they were built that way so that towns could be founded around them and that tourists could come and sort of talk about a Spanish past. And it's just sort of funny cultural experience because the idea was that the Spanish had come and then they had sort of disappeared and they just kind of, you know, um, evaporated. Uh, And if you know California history, uh, you know, the Mexican-Americans were the ones that were there. There were very few Spanish. Right. Uh, The priests were Spanish often in many cases, but the people were indigenous mestizos from Mexico, or they were those neophytes who'd converted, right, who I think today have a very strongly indigenous rather than Mexican uh, orientation toward themselves, even though they might be Spanish surnamed. And so I think historians are always critiqued for unraveling uh, the ball of twine to the point where people feel confused. But I think it's healthy that we do it. Um, And California now is confronting those things. But I remember I took a tour of the capital of California, and I asked on the official tour about the dates they were using. And uh, the tour guide, who was herself an immigrant, uh, a European immigrant, said to me, if you want that other tour, you got to go to Monterey. Uh,
1: (laughs) Yeah.
0: Speaking of the long Hispanic cultural and governmental history of the United States, in an interview about your book, Rethinking the Chicano Movement, you said that the United States has a centuries-long Hispanic cultural tradition and that if we wrote U.S. history from south to north instead of from east to west, we would see a deeply rooted history of natives and Spanish over European ones. Can you elaborate on this a bit?
2: Yeah. um, The way that textbooks have for a very long time been written, and I would argue um, are written Uh, very much today um, is that we take a look at a a narrative that we all know, and that narrative is often sort of produced at the public schools and the private schools or what have you, where you have basically an idea, and I I think it has changed to some degree, where you have Europeans coming, mainly English-speaking. There's sort of real ignorance of French colonialism or Dutch colonialism or those things, and so we all know the story of uh, the Puritans in Massachusetts, and uh, people going to uh, Virginia, and I think half of the East Coast thinks they're related to Pocahontas, and <laughs> there's this kind of narrative where, uh, in some ways, you know that th- those sort of family stories about p- being related to Pocahontas. My my grandmother uh, had that story, and um, I think when my mother's family did their, you know. DNA tests, they found that they, were, they had no native blood at all. And so that sort of story about uh, coming to the East Coast and, you know, there was sort of some native ancestry was just bogus. Um, and it's part of a story where you have sort of the people landing at Plymouth Rock and then the expansion. And I mentioned what our journal uh, tended to be focused on, this idea of Western expansion. And if you look at paintings from like the 19th century, You have like Lady Columbia sort of flying over the air and there's wagons following her. And you see Native Americans off in the distance and they're just sort of, you know, disappearing like the Spanish disappeared in California. And those are very Pacific, peaceful looking photographs, right? But but what they hide is this sort of violent history. And I think historians today show uh, the way in which those people who landed on the East Coast often had a extremely violent view, and today we would call it racist or racialist view, of the indigenous peoples. And so, uh, for example, there's a guy at Rutgers, Peter Silver, that talks about uh, Indian hating uh, in, in the early American period. And so what we now have is a very much, a much more complicated history of, Uh, America that's less about some friendly folks landing in Massachusetts and then a bunch of nice slave owners writing a constitution and then moving west and, you know, establishing family farms as as if there were no Native Americans in Massachusetts, right, or or Georgia for that matter. And yet at the same time, that east to west narrative dominates the way that we teach and the way that we think. And what scholars uh, of... Subaltern places, right? So Africa is considered subaltern. Latin America is considered subaltern. Asia, in many, in, in many circumstances, considered subaltern. They've argued that we need to think about these perspectives very differently and flip them sometimes. And I think if you if you take a look at colonialization and settlement, you really need to take a look at the way in which it was happening on both the West Coast uh, in what would have then been northern Mexico and on the East Coast. And they were both colonial. Right. The Spanish were coming and their mestizo uh, soldiers were coming to conquer and put flags in the ground. Right. And there were indigenous people in Texas. Absolutely. And there were indigenous people in New Mexico and California. And they were confronting on that frontier. Mestizo people, who were holding the flag of Spain and then later Mexico, and they were bringing, again, putting this in quote, civilization, and by that they meant the Catholic Church and the Spanish language, even if they themselves were hybrid people, right? Uh, mestizos. And so that complicates things because you have a European conquest being led by mixed ancestry people on from south to north versus we have an extremely racialized east to west conquest, where they talk about evaporating the Native Americans, right? Terrifying language is really used. They're talking about extermination. And we see those kinds of things in lots of places. So Tasmania, for example, is famous for wars of near extermination of indigenous people, Um, and we see the same thing uh, in the United States as it spreads uh, east to west. South to north, there's a lot of warfare, absolutely. Uh, The Apaches and the Comanches are fighting the Spanish. But we also have, uh, at least within, I guess, the broader Hispanic world, this belief that uh, integration into intermarriage is okay, right? And so you have people, uh, again, the actual circumstances of that can be debated. But you have this idea that there's nothing necessarily wrong about mixture. Although the Spanish do get fixated on this. If you go to the Museum of the Americas in uh, Madrid, They have a whole section of that museum that's focused on these paintings where they tried to figure out what people looked like when they were mixed of certain backgrounds. So every possible mixture of African, uh, American, indigenous American, and European is – they try to account for it in paintings. So someone who's Spanish and Indian is Mestizo and then their children would be something else. And I think it's probably one of those things where they must have a hundred paintings. Oh my gosh. Because they were just trying to figure out what people would look like when you mixed everything together. And I think that's kind of fascinating. And if we go south to north, we have to look at those things. Yeah. So I don't
1: think it's any secret that American history is filled with racial discrimination of many different ethnic and racial groups. This stems from way before our country was even declared its independence. But thinking back on the way I learned United States history, I really didn't start learning about movements like the Chicano movement until high school. And whenever we learned and covered the Chicano movement, it was always secondary to something like the Civil Rights Movement. So when looking at those two movements, did they run parallel or was it subsequent to the Civil Rights Movement?
2: Yeah, in many ways they ran parallel. And I think... Again, if you think about the way that we teach history in this country, if we teach it east to west, uh, the black power movement and the civil uh, war and the civil rights movement, slavery, uh, these are dominant themes. The idea of a binary America, right, where you've got black and white intention and collaboration, but, you know, oftentimes uh, as opposed uh, concepts. And then you go to California, and it's a very different story. There's a very small African-American population. And so, you know, I think one of the things that's striking for Chicano people in California and also here in Oregon is that there's a discussion about these histories of African-American civil rights and the tensions between whites and African-Americans, and you're in places where the dominant minority groups were Asian and were Latino. And so in some ways to have an add-on in California is just kind of absurd, right? Now, that being said, if we take a look at when these movements are establishing themselves in the 20th century, uh, we see in the early 1910s and 19-teens the establishment of the NAACP. We also have some 10 or 15 years later, the establishment of the League of United Latin American Citizens. And so in some ways, They are um, operating in very similar, parallel ways. Uh, Now, their orientations towards civil rights legislation and litigation is different because Mexican-Americans were considered white, right? Uh, They were considered white as a result of the 1848 Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, uh, which ceded half of Mexico to the United States, including California, right? Right. And in that process, uh, you have these really interesting cases in the late 19th century. One is, case name is Rodriguez, where basically judges are saying, you know, I'm looking at this guy and this person is, is, is dark-complected, they look indigenous, and often they go off into really weird detail about what that means. And they're like, but, you know, basically we have a treaty and the treaty says they're eligible for citizenship, ergo they're white. So this person to me doesn't look white at all. And then there are other cases. Uh, there's a case called Singh, uh, where you have South Asians, and in that particular case, Singh was Aryan, like could prove his ancestry back generations, and so he was the purest Aryan, you know, that you could find. And the judge says, "Yeah, you might be, you know, uh, Aryan, and somewhere back in the you know, the mists of history, we might be related, because you know, Europeans think they're somehow Aryan, right?" <laughs> um, and he said, "But I'm looking at you, and you just you're." you're obviously a Brown person. And so saying not eligible for citizenship, Rodriguez eligible for citizenship with the same discussion about their skin color dominating. And yet in the one case, they're like, we can't do anything about it. Rodriguez to our eyes, looks like he's not white, but, uh, we have to, you know, treat him as if he's eligible for citizenship. And what that meant was you couldn't formally discriminate against Mexican ancestry people in the United States in the same way that you could in the Jim Crow South, right? And so you had this kind of process by which the discrimination becomes formal in places like Texas for African-Americans and then informal. And so you can find these photographs where it says basically white bathroom here and then it says uh, colored bathroom here, and I'm putting that in quotes, and then underneath the sign that says colored is another sign that says hombres aquí, Right. And it's very, it doesn't say Mexicans, but it's pretty clear that the Spanish speakers are supposed to use the colored bathroom. Again, putting that in quotes. And so I think for many people who teach Chicano history, um, it's about making sure that we line up those stories and are, ver- are very attentive to the fact that we do have an East Coast orientation in much of our historical understanding, but that the West Coast orientation is not merely one of tacking things on.
0: So all across the world, with introductions of different ethnic and national groups, there's always a sort of shift in ethnic identities of these people who are being taken over. How did the Chicano movement change the ethnic identity of Mexican-Americans?
2: That's a great question. Well, Chicanos, sort of, you know, they fit between two places, right? And so one of the things I think that's striking is that Uh, And I think we lose track of this sometimes now that there's much more immigration from Mexico that's been really sustained uh, immigration. Chicanos, say, in the 1950s and 1960s, uh, were unanimously, not unanimously, but they were significantly made up of people born in the United States. right? And for the first time, that was true, because in the 20s and 30s, The population had been one of, you know, perhaps mixed parentage, where one parent was from Mexico and one was from California or Texas or Arizona. So by the 1960s, we start to see that Chicanos don't really feel Mexican. And Mexicans don't treat them as Mexicans, right? There's a term pocho, right? And they refer to them as pochos. And interestingly enough, I've read some letters of Chicano activists and I, 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 I zoned it. I, I focused in on some letters I t- took a look at where, you know, one of these young Chicano activists in the 1960s moved to Mexico City. And in Mexico City, they just called him an American. He also had a hard time getting his phone hooked up. But what I remember was that he really, really wanted to go back to what he, what he saw as the homeland, the motherland, right? And Mexico City is this really uh, impressive major global city. And he gets there, and they're just like, yeah, you're not Mexican. And so I think being between American culture and Mexican culture and not fitting in either place sort of defines where the Chicanos kind of began to define something separate for themselves. And and there's a poem, and I think it's riddled with some issues of gender, and I would just call it chauvinism, male chauvinism. But there's a poem by a guy who's a very prominent Chicano activist named Corky Gonzalez, and uh, that's Yo Soy Joaquin. He wasn't really able to speak Spanish, which I think is interesting, and it's also the case for many Chicanos. But he defined himself between these two places and spoke about the tensions of that.
1: So do you think that there is a growing disconnect between today's second and third generation Chicano population and the history and culture of their ancestors?
2: Yeah, I I, I think that can be the case sometimes. I think that for many of the students I've taught here and elsewhere, uh, this is one of the first places, say, taking a course like mine or another course in Chicano studies, where they've felt that they could come out uh, as Chicano in a way because maybe their parents had wanted them to integrate and get good jobs and sort of fit in. And so I've, I've run into students who, you know, don't look, and this is interesting, right? I just mentioned the Rodriguez case and the Singh case. They might not look Hispanic or Latino, but they are. And I think that, that's that been an interesting th- thing for me, and it's come up many times. I think in terms of teaching, I come into contact with a lot of people who are first generation. At the same time, I come into contact with people who are, like you said, third and fourth generation. And I think it's almost 10 years ago now when those first uh, – immigration rights marches took place, that I, I think I started to notice that some of the people who were Mexican immigrants and Central American immigrants, and really kind of, maybe they ridiculed or teased, I'm not sure I've been teased, Chicanos for not speaking Spanish and not being kind of focused that way, uh, even though they you know may have lived here in this country, their families for 150 years, right? This real sense that, well, the language is shifting. And so if you look Hispanic or you have a Spanish surname, you're now suspect in this country. And so I think I saw in those marches a lot of the third, fourth, and fifth generation people reaching out to and being reached out to by the first and second generation people. Because if if we look alike and we're being treated in a way that's discriminatory then our tensions about who speaks spanish do they speak it at all do they speak it just a little bit those are not really the important issues the the issue is we're being t- treated as a group and we're being d- identified negatively as a group and so i remember hearing from a lot of people that necessary weren't necessarily supportive of those marches in 2006 2007 per se who got involved and actually became supportive because they were like hey you know, we're all being called these things. And I think that that's kind of been something that I think is held fast and been kind of durable. So that's a good thing for a community, I think.
1: Professor, speaking about your own personal experience, you grew up around migrant worker families and your father was a migrant in Texas. Mexican Americans from Texas, as you stated in your book, the Tejano diaspora, referred to themselves as Tejano, not Mexicano.
2: What is the significance of the distinction between the two? That's a good one. Uh, I think in Texas, maybe it was less important. Uh, There was a lot more mixing together of peoples. But I think Tejano became important when uh, migrant workers were in places like Washington, Oregon, the Midwest, right? And so I think one of the things that was striking for me in doing oral histories was that You know, people who might have had rivalries based upon where they were from in Texas, and in Texas that usually means football rivalries and things like that. Uh, Once they got to Wisconsin, where they were all basically considered Mexicans by the Anglo population, they kind of broke down some of those tensions about whether they were from the Valley or whether they were from West Texas or Southwest Texas. And they basically were comfortable knowing that the people they were working with were also Texans, right? And it didn't necessarily place them in that sort of you know, 1700s era Tejanos. Uh, these are people who consider themselves to be the original Tejanos. Again, uh, you know, these, are, these are issues to be debated elsewhere. But it tied them together in faraway places like Moses Lake, Washington, for example, or Gilroy, California, uh, where Tejanos could find other Tejanos and find some community and some friendship. And it became important for them far away from the place. right? And so I think you see this in a lot of immigrant communities and migrant communities. The Tejanos were citizens, right? But uh, where people migrate, um, having people from your hometown can break down barriers that might have been between the people in their hometowns, right? So north side, south side, suburban, rural, urban, rural. Uh, if you're from, you know, a place and you're far away from that place, uh, it becomes more important that you're just from that place. Uh, and I see that even today, you know, and my neighbors that are all from Minnesota seem to be, you know, tied together and getting Minnesota tattoos. <laughs>
1: Sounds like a very Portland thing. Yeah, I
2: think you know, I, I, I don't know why half of the state of Minnesota has moved here, but at any rate, <laughs> uh, apparently that's what's happened.
0: Professor, as you mentioned a little bit ago, how there has recently been groupings together of Mexican-Americans and Latino-Americans standing together in defense of the cultural and political things happening to them. You also mentioned historically how the way that they look plays a somewhat mixed factor and in my own personal experience my mother is hispanic but she was adopted so we didn't grow up speaking spanish and my father is very european white and so my half sister looks much different from me and her experience has been different than mine because even though we shared the same amount of hispanic blood she is actually even in this day and age, I was surprised to find out, has been called slurs at the grocery store or, you know, getting on the bus or has been actually followed in stores at the mall to make sure she's not stealing anything. Are there any historical instances of these Mexican-Americans who are being called white or who are not wanting to be called white kind of separating into different groups and taking sort of different stances on the political things that are happening to them?
2: Yeah, I think uh, skin color uh, has always played a role in uh, how members of minority groups identify externally and internally. And so, for example, uh, within the African-American community elites, there was this sort of, they called it the brown paper bag test, that you needed to be light, lighter skinned than brown paper bag. Um, and that comes up in that the lighter skinned uh, African-Americans have much more access Um, And that those who appear to be white um, often were able to pass as white, right? And the same is true uh, for, I think, more broadly, Hispanics, right? And so when we take a look at phenotype and mobility, we we see that's played out in in a lot of places. And so, for example, I think one of the best examples is very similar to the one that you give, is where you have European light-skinned Spanish Cubans who have been able to integrate and experience significant upward mobility, right? They're they're basically on par with Anglo Americans. Uh, but then, when you look at Afro uh, Cubans and darker skinned Cubans, a very different story is revealed. And so, I think you can see that within the Mexican American population in California, where we have one of the highest percentages of intermarriage between. Um, Anglo-Americans and uh, Mexican-Americans, and so there are people who may not identify externally as Chicano or Mexican-American who are, like you pointed out, they actually are, right? And so I think the sort of troubling thing that you point out is that you can have two siblings, and one can be treated very differently, and I think that sort of plays out in this court case very old court case in california mendez versus westminster where you had a very light-skinned i think it was a cousin or niece i'm not sure i can't remember now a light-skinned girl who was admitted to the elementary school which was all white and they would refer to her as spanish and then her sister who was darker skinned was told now you go to the mexican school and the case sort of dribbled through and i had the uh, opportunity to meet one of the mendez sisters so that was really neat some years ago she was the darker skinned girl And she said, you know, they put me in this school, which theoretically was there because I couldn't speak English, right? Because they couldn't discriminate based on race because all Mexicans were supposed to be white. And her parents were like, well, you know, she doesn't speak Spanish. So putting her in a remedial program, uh, transitional bilingual program, doesn't help because she's not Spanish speaking. And so I think it was purely about race in that case. And I think within families – I mentioned the brown paper bag test within the African-American community uh, historically. Historically within families, there's been this sort of idea that the lighter-skinned children are favored, right, within families. And so, for example, there's this sort of saying in Mexican uh, uh, culture – basically when a baby is born and it's light skinned, you know, there's a lot of praise for this, right? And then when a baby is born and it's dark skinned, they refer to the baby as la prieta, right? And I knew about this and taught things related to this. And um, one of my cousins had a child with a very light skinned Latina. And everyone was thinking this was going to be a light skinned baby. And it turned out to be a very dark skinned baby. And I heard that woman's mother and my aunt, speaking in Spanish about how the baby was la prieta negra. And they turned to the mother and said something in Spanish to her, like, oh, it's too bad your son didn't turn out like you. And people of color, I don't think, are necessarily celebrating the whiteness per se. They're talking about the very real thing that you mention. Well, the lighter-skinned kid might not be followed in the mall. The darker skinned kid will be. The lighter skinned kid might be able to sort of make an excuse as to why they're in the park over, you know, at past 10 o'clock with a beer in their hand. Uh, The darker skinned brother might not be able to do that. And we know how people profile and, and how those things are done even today. And to think about the level of severity in places like Texas in the 1930s or 1940s, you would have seen, you know, the lighter skinned Spanish, right? And that was often seen by Anglos as a way to compliment lighter skinned people. They would say, oh, well, you know, you look Spanish. Having never been to Spain, they're saying that because people in Spain can be very dark skinned as well. Mm -hmm. And so I think that personal story about your experiences is something we see not just today, but we see it going back for generations and I was talking to a friend of mine and I said that you know in Portland Oregon I, I notice that sometimes there's a difference of treatment uh, when I go out with some Latino friends that are older people like myself and it's kind of strange because I'm not used to that and I would argue that places like Portland are behind and backwards because in New York City everybody now is used to being mixed and Chicago there's much more mixture and much more diversity right uh, and I think it's much more common now in those very large cities, I would include Los Angeles as well, for groups to be mixed and for the police to be mixed. And, you know, we're seeing a lot more of that. Here, I think it's it feels like it's 20 or 30 years behind. And that's just a historian talking about, <laughs> you know, the way I look at the world now.
1: So before we go, um, we have one last question that we we ask every single person yeah, who we, comes we we in. We like this here. question. We like this okay. question a lot. <laughs> Sounds good. And Emily has been so gracious to give me the honor of asking it. If you could go back in time, when and where would you go, why would you go there, and who would you speak to? That's interesting. Just to pick
2: one. Um, goodness. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm just going to answer with something I think that would be fun. Um, I, would, I would really like uh, experiencing the late 1960s. And I would like the late 1960s and not be draft eligible. Um, (laughs) And if I could go back to that time period, um, my serious conversation would be with Lyndon Johnson. Uh, You know, why did you pursue these wonderful reforms in civil rights and the great society and the war on poverty, and yet you couldn't get your hands around the idea that this war in Vietnam was going to destroy your legacy? That's the serious question. Um, I'd also want to see uh, Jimi Hendrix in the doors before they passed away. (laughs) I totally agree.
0: (laughs) So, Professor Rodriguez, we want to thank you for taking the time to come and talk with us and especially for sharing your personal experience. It has been a great pleasure interviewing you. We would like to encourage our listeners to learn more about Chicano and immigrant history, not only to expand your historical horizons, but because it can be relevant today in understanding and discussing immigration and ethnic identity in today's politically charged world.
1: Thank you for coming on. Thank you. Beyond Footnotes is produced by students of the PSU Department of History and is recorded in the studio of KPSU. You can find information about this episode on our show page at kpsu.org slash footnotes and on SoundCloud. We are always interested to know what you guys think about the show. Recently, we've been entertaining the idea of a quiz show. So please let us know your thoughts by contacting the Beyond Footnotes team on Facebook, Twitter, or email at beyondfootnotes at gmail.com.
0: Seriously, let us know because we haven't heard from any of you.
1: Yes, please.